The human penis is very strange. It's it's the largest penis of any primate relative to body size. And it's also got this strange shape with the flared head and the repeated thrusting action, which is also unique to humans. The theory is that the reason the human penis is shaped this way is that combined with the repeated thrusting movement, it creates a vacuum in the female's reproductive tract and pulls any pre-existing sperm away from her ovum. He's back. It's part two with podcaster and evolutionary sex expert, Dr. Chris Ryan, author of Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death. He writes all about the way societal expectations have been encroaching on our natural ways of doing things, particularly sex, but much, much more. Today, we'll be looking at the human penis, why not, and comparing it to those of other monkeys and such things. We come out quite well out of that, so be proud, people. Of course, we talk about far more than that. Do get his aforementioned books, they're in the show notes, along with a link to his excellent and esteemed podcast, Tangentially Speaking, where you'll find me. I was interviewed on it just a few weeks ago and had a lot of fun on there, talking about my own creative endeavours. So that's Tangentially Speaking, it's one of the biggest podcasts in the States. I was also recently on the podcast and YouTube channel of the brilliant interviewer Eric Hunley, Unstructured. So check me out on there too and give his channel a chance. That's Eric Hunley. But back to Chris. This is a really fun and fascinating chat. I made it into two parts, this being the second. So catch the first one from last week if you're here now. What are you doing here? Just start at the beginning because we spoke for so damn long. I had to make it into two. As a result, this one is a little shorter than usual, but there are a couple of things I hope will make up for that so that you don't despise me and leave me forever and send me hate mail. Firstly, just yesterday, I put up three brand new unexpected Halloween special episodes with forensic psychiatrist Dr. Shahom Das. So you should have more than enough content to get you through the week because we were talking about Anders Breivik and other true crime things and how people got into that kind of psychological state of mind. Secondly, the bonus content with Chris is the longest I've done yet, coming in at half an hour. There wasn't a bonus episode last week, so hopefully that'll go some way towards making it up to my members. There are about 110 of you at the moment and rising. What I would say is, if you listen to just one bonus episode, make it this one. If you want, you can sign up for a free trial uh, to my VIP bonus area through Apple, listen to this episode, and then simply cancel. You can listen to the other episodes as well. Cancel within a few days and then it's free for you. If you can't afford to sign up, get in touch with me and I'll, I'll send this to you because I want you guys to hear this. Uh, Patreon is the most popular method of signing up because it has a great interface. And again, you can just pay £3 or $4 for the first month and then simply cancel after if you want, after listening to all the stuff. But whatever you do, do catch this bonus episode. It's half an hour long, no ads. We talk about people using the word to do when used in conjunction with traveling, the problems with certainty, why nuance is important, and the strange story behind Chris's favorite swear word, and the sound of a woman in ecstasy, and when Chris acted in a porn movie. And also, yeah, there's more stuff, when Chris met John Ronson, his thoughts on Dave Chappelle and the whole controversy there. If you don't know about that, look that up. I mean, that's going crazy at the moment. Netflix and everything. Dave Chappelle. Censorship. We talk about censorship. Ricky Gervais, Jordan Peterson, cancel culture. 
So that's all there. You'll also get early access to full ad-free episodes on there. So sign up on Apple or patreon.com slash andrewgold. For now, here is part two, the full release with Dr. Chris Ryan. Do you have advice for couples, married couples who have been together for decades and are having sexual issues and dysfunctional relationships around sex? Well, the, one of the motivations for writing Sex at Dawn is to offer people a more scientifically grounded understanding of what human sexuality is and why it is the way it is. And so we don't really offer advice in the book. In fact, we explicitly say in the book, like, look, we don't, we don't really know what to do with this information, right? Like this is a starting point of a conversation. It's not uh, an end point with, you know, five steps to a perfect marriage, right? Um, but I think that it's, if you start with this understanding that, okay, humans evolved as um, multi-male, multi-female mating system, which is clear. And if you want to go back to talk about testicles and penis and all that kind of stuff, you know, in that line of evidence, we can mm. do that. But, yep. but the point is it, it's quite, if you read sex at dawn, it's, I think the, obviously the argument is overwhelming that that is how our species evolved. And, that's our sort of natural um, inclination. That doesn't mean that everyone should be promiscuous in the modern world or that that's the right way to approach these things in the current context. But it means that that's what you're going to want to do. So, um, you know, I, I think of monogamy sexual monogamy as being similar to vegetarianism. It can be um, ethically uh, a superior approach. It can, it can be really good for your health. For some people, it, it um, is far better um, health-wise. Uh, it can be better for the environment. It can be better for the animals. I and mean, there are a lot of good arguments for vegetarianism. But because we didn't evolve as vegetarians, it's always going to be a challenge. And just because you've decided to become a vegetarian doesn't mean that bacon suddenly stops smelling good, right? So I think having that kind of realistic assessment of what kind of animal you are um, will enable you to, to have conversations that you might otherwise not be able to have and hopefully will lead to more compassion and um, understanding uh, with oneself and with one's partners. Um, and that in itself, I think, is a really important step. So the advice I would have for couples is, first of all, understand what kind of animal you are. And secondly, forgive yourself for being that and take it from there. And forgive her or him for being that as well. So I think a lot of people have this assumption because they've been misinformed. They have this assumption that if I truly love my partner, I won't be attracted to anyone else. That's nonsense. 
That's totally nonsense. So, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I really love my husband, but man, I get turned on every time I, you know, play tennis with the next door neighbor. What's wrong with me? There's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with my marriage. No, there's nothing wrong with anything. You're a homo sapien. That's all, that's all that means. You're, you know, why would we think, oh yeah, homo sapiens, the most intelligent mammal in the world, apparently super interested in change and novelty, right? We love to travel. We love to listen to different kinds of music. We love to eat different kinds of food, different kinds of art, different kinds of movies. We love having our minds stimulated in all these different ways. But with sex, oh no, just one partner forever. That's the natural way. It's nonsense. It's ridiculous. And so it creates all these unrealistic expectations and structures of shame and resentment and anger and self-hatred and uh, you know, it's totally um, misunderstood because people are starting from a misunderstanding of what kind of animal we are. I'm a vegetarian um, and I have been for a few years now and I really miss meat. And I, I don't think I'm going to go back to it, but I, I, I really do. When I smell, because especially having lived in Argentina, I smell that, that, oh man, there's just nothing like it, you know. I can't watch Anthony Bourdain now because it just stresses. He, he likes a lot of meat, and uh, but but yeah, I totally get you know, and that that almost gives me a bit of shame because it's like, oh, I'm trying to be a vegetarian, and you know, and obviously the sexual one, yeah, I think that's I think that's great advice because I think there is a lot of shame and a lot of uh, questioning the marriage, questioning the relationship if you so much as look at someone else, and I suppose it's more more normal. Tell me about um, penises and balls then. Um, well, as I said, you can read a great deal about the evolution of a species by looking at the modern body of the species. So, you know, imagine we have a, a, a mystery animal and it's here on the table and we're like, okay, well, let's try to figure out what, you know, what kind of animal is this? Where did this animal live? Well, uh, does it have subcutaneous fat? Ah, well, lived in a cold environment. Does it have webbing on its feet? Ah, it's an aquatic animal, right? So what kind of teeth? Is it a predator? Are the eyes on the sides or are the eyes in the front? Well, if they're on the sides, it was probably a prey animal. If they're in the front, it's probably a predator, right? So there are all these different things you can look at an animal's body and just like tell a story immediately. Um, with the reproductive system of humans, um, Different primates have different uh, genitalia that corresponds to different mating systems. So with gorillas, for example, that are uh, among the great apes, so they're closely related to humans, not as close as bonobos and gorillas. In fact, most scientists would say that without human bias, the, the purely scientific way to look at humans and, and um, bonobos and chimps is that we are three subspecies of chimpanzee. That's how closely related we are to chimps and bonobos. Then more distantly, you have gorillas. Then more distantly, you have orangutans. And then more distantly, you have gibbons. And those are the great apes. And uh, so when you look at gorillas, what you see is that gorillas have very small testicles about the size of kidney beans. 
very small penis, uh, an erect gorilla's penis is around the size of your pinky finger. And the testicles are inside the gorilla's abdomen. They, they're not in a scrotum outside the abdomen. So how do gorillas mate? Turns out gorillas are a harem-based system. So what happens is the males fight among each other. The, the male that wins the fight is the silverback. He's the dominant male. The other adult males are expelled. They, they leave the group. And that silverback has several females, and he's the only male that has sex with those females. So the competition, uh, in a Darwinian sense, happens between the males, the individual males, right? The males fight, the big strong one kicks the other ones out, the biggest one, and then he's the only one who has sex with those females. So there's no, all the competition takes place between individuals. So the largest, strongest, most ferocious male is the one who tends to have the babies. So there's sort of a runaway evolutionary cycle there where you get males that are bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's why male gorillas are approximately twice the size of female gorillas, right? It's called body size dimorphism. Whereas among chimps and bonobos, what you find is that generally, especially in bonobos and also with chimps, there is some male to male violence among chimps for mating access, but among bonobos, virtually none. Um, there's promiscuous mating. So several different males will mate with any given female during her period of ovulation and so if if lots of different males are having sex with her, then it doesn't matter who's the biggest, strongest male. What matters is who's got the most sperm cells. So the competition is taking place between sperm cells, not between individual males. So consequently, what you get is males evolve to have bigger testicles, more sperm per ejaculation the capacity to have more ejaculations in a 24-hour period. So the competition is taking place within the female's reproductive system, not out in the world between males fighting. Man. Um, so when you look at the human testicles, our testicles, oh, also I should mention, the testicles outside the body have a lower temperature. That's why they're housed outside the body so that they can have a lower temperature. That lower temperature allows sperm cells to last longer. So you've got more sort of uh, reserve so you can have more ejaculations in a given period and you've always got sperm cells ready to go. Whereas um, testicles inside the body, you don't have reserves. They have to, once you ejaculate, then it takes 24 to 48 hours to generate more sperm cells before you can ejaculate again. So it's a totally different system that's reflected in the genitalia of the males, as well as the relative body size of males and females. Gorillas, I mean, um, bonobos, chimps, and humans, the males are about 20% bigger than females, typically. Gorillas, they're twice the size, 100% larger. Um so if you look at human testicles, they're somewhere between the size, the volume of 
gorillas and chimps. But interestingly, even though they're, so you could sort of argue, well, they're close, you know, they're in the middle. So we're more like gorillas. Well, we're clearly not like gorillas because we're not twice the size of females. Um, and even though our testicles are smaller than those of bonobos and chimps, the tissue has the spermatogenic capacity. We create far more sperm cells uh, per gram of testicular tissue than, than bonobos or chimps. So they're smaller, but they're kind of turbocharged. Then you look at the penis. Humans are, you know, the only um, species that has sex with this like repeated thrusting movement. Hmm. Most mammals, the way they have sex is they insert the penis, they ejaculate, and they withdraw the penis. That's it. And it takes about eight seconds for most isn't, species. That's normal, isn't it? <laughs> I thought six was normal. Well, uh, are the people having more than eight seconds? <laughs> yeah. So um, the human penis is very strange. It's it's the largest penis of any primate relative yeah. to body size. And it's also got this strange shape with the flared head. And the repeated thrusting action, which is also unique to humans. And so the, the theory is that the reason the human penis is shaped this way is that combined with the repeated thrusting movement, it creates a vacuum in the female's reproductive tract and pulls any pre-existing sperm away from her ovum. Do you think like all the people listening now, there'll be thousands of men who get a tiny bit on a very basic level, tiny bit of pride about having a, you know, la larger testicles than a gorilla? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, it's quite a thought, isn't it? Why not? Yeah, I mean, if someone says you're hung like a gorilla, that's that's <laughs> not as much of a compliment as you might think. That's so strange to think of. Yeah, you wouldn't have thought that at all, that we're better endowed than a gorilla. And the gorilla doesn't care. He's pretty chilled about it. But uh, yeah, yeah. Where, where did I cut you off? Oh, the the I was I was going on about the uh, that flared the flared head of yes. the penis combined with the repeated thrusting action creates a, a vacuum in the female's reproductive tract, which serves to pull away the sperm of a man who may have already had sex. What? Yeah. So That's it's disgusting. A, yeah. <laughs> and Dan Savage, who is a, I don't know if you know him, he's a sex advice columnist. I, I told him about this and he, he calls it the plunger penis theory. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, and <clears throat> I mean, you know, this stuff is, is kind of strange, but it's extremely common in species that have multiple mating. There are all sorts of, uh, evolved behaviors and um, anatomical features that indicate this. You know, some some species, when the male ejaculates, um, he will deposit what's called an ejaculatory or a copulatory plug, which is like a waxy 
um, substance that blocks the sperm oh, from the next CO. guy. Right. Yeah. Um, dogs. When dogs have sex, the head of the dog's penis swells to the point where he can't pull it out of the female. You see these dogs stuck together. Well, that's another evolved thing to stop the next dog from coming and ejaculating. So, well, so how do they get out? Well, eventually the head um, recedes and he can withdraw. But mm. what happens is this is a way to allow his sperm to have access to the, the female's ovum without another dog coming in and, you know, throwing his into the mix. So there are, there are all sorts of things. There are penises that have a hook on the end so that when the penis goes in, it hooks the um, copulatory plug from the previous male and pulls that out, right? Mm. In humans, mm. um, you know, even the, the chemicals in an ejaculate indicate this. The first spurt, of a man's ejaculate has a chemical that is um, corrosive or kills sperm cells from other males. And then the middle spurts contain most of his ejaculate, uh, his sperm. And then the last spurt contains a protective chemical to protect against the first spurt from someone else. So, you know, these things are... People don't want to hear this. A lot of conventional scientists, because they're very wedded, if you pardon the pun, to a sort of standard, you know, one man, one woman, uh, nuclear family thing. They don't want to hear this stuff, but it's there and it's obvious and and it's very clear. Like we don't have this sort of, uh, you know, chemi- chemicals in our ejaculates for no reason. This isn't a random occurrence. Wow, that, I find this so fascinating. I, I love this. Um, we should get on to uh, civilized to death. I don't have too much time, uh, but but we can't not mention it. Do like tell me tell me what what it's about. Well, <clears throat> it came out as in Sexaton. You know, we were writing a lot about sexuality, obviously, and um, but I felt that we needed to include information about other aspects of prehistoric life. Because you can't just write about sexual relationships without writing about the economics of hunter-gatherer life and um, how children are raised and, you know, how the, the role of uh, older people and all this kind of stuff, um, the, the how political power works in hunter-gatherer groups. So in the middle of the book, we sort of took a, a bit of an interlude and just very briefly covered some of those things. And... Um, you know, what hunter-gatherer life was really like, because we're so, as I said earlier, there's so much propaganda around this. Um, and I I kind of looked at it as like slipping the pill into the meat for the dog, you know, like people were going to be fascinated by the sex stuff and I'd trick them into reading this <laughs> other stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, but I was surprised that a lot of people got back to me and said, you know, Hey, I really enjoyed reading this, but I'd love to know more about the politics, about the economics, yeah. about, you know, how prevalent was violence in prehistory? You know, what what were their diets like? What was the exercise patterns? Like, what was life like for hunter-gatherers, not just the sex? Um, so sex civilized to death is sort of taking that that tease in sex at dawn and expanding that out and saying, okay. What was hunter-gatherer life really like? Because since the time of Hobbes, we've been told that 
life before the state was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, right? Turns out Hobbes had no idea what he was fucking talking about. He just pulled that totally out of his ass. Yeah. Hobbes' life was nasty, poor, brutish, and short. Um, and so he extrapolated and projected into prehistory. When you really look at prehistory, what you find is shocking um, because hunter-gatherers live really well. Now, I'm not saying that uh, there aren't problems. There are problems. The biggest problem is infant mortality. Uh, about 40% of hunter-gatherer kids die before the age of 10. And so you get these statements like, you know, um, the average hunter-gatherer lifespan is 35 years. And, uh, you know, everyone was dead by the time they were 40. That's a statistical misunderstanding. Yes, a lot of kids died. And so when you do um, an average, you end up with an average lifespan at birth of 35 to 40 years. That doesn't mean a 35-year-old human being was ever old, except Mark Zuckerberg, possibly. But any other 35-year-old human being was halfway through their lives, roughly. Um, human beings, hunter-gatherers, live well into their 70s, even into their 80s. Uh, so, you know, that's that's a statistical argument that's made over and over again that is total bullshit. Um, if you survive childhood as a hunter-gatherer, you can expect to live as long as someone in the modern world within a few years. And if you incorporate the understanding that most of the sort of last few years of most people's lives in the modern world who live into their 80s are spent suffering and hooked up to machines, if you look at healthy lifespan, Hunter-gatherers live at least as long as modern humans. So basically what I wanted to do in Civilized to Death was look at hunter-gatherers' lives uh, in real terms and because there's so much nonsense out there. And then really ask the question, has civilization been a net benefit for the average human being? Now, that's, that sounds like a ridiculous question. It's sacrilegious to many people. But I think it's a legitimate question. And I think that if you look at quality of life in terms of the things that actually matter to people, things like free time, time spent with friends, a uh, sense of meaning in life, uh, how much time you spend doing things you would rather not do. Uh, how much time you, you can spend in creativity and, you know, leisure, quality of diet, uh, expectations of health, expectations of dying through violence. What you find is hunter-gatherer life is actually superior, even mm. to the lives of modern humans, uh, you know, who are very fortunate to live in the best possible conditions like you and me. Yeah. So much less talking about people in favelas or, you know, living in Mozambique or someplace like that, where the life expectancy is actually much lower than that of, of hunter-gatherers. 
Yeah, I guess the sacrilegious is is interesting you say that because I, I was thinking the same thing. People don't want to hear that because we like to believe there's a progression and that things are going to get better and better, particularly with aging. Because I came across that as well when I had somebody on who was telling me about how we're going to live longer and we're going to live forever uh, and and uh, solve aging and dying and stuff. And then, you know, and it's a nice thought. Of, yeah, they were living to 30 back then. And then nowadays it's so in a few years, it'll be we'll be living to a thousand but uh, yeah, it's not the it's not the case. It's the infant mortality stuff that that sways it. That is a big thing, to be fair. You don't want lots of infant mortality. That's the bad part. Well, sure, but you know, it's all about how you measure things. So people look at hunter gatherer groups and they say, okay, there was a lot of infant mortality. That's tragic. That's horrible, etc. True. And then they look at the modern world and they say, look, we have very low infant mortality. What about abortions? Why aren't abortions included in that? There are hundreds of millions of abortions every year in the world. And those don't, those aren't included in the statistics. Whereas many of the infants who died in the hunter gatherer world were born, um, with deformities or unhealthy in other ways. Um, so it doesn't really make sense to say, okay, well, we've got technology where we can, um, detect serious health issues and abort the fetus, whereas that fetus, that child would have been born and died in mm. prehistory. So it's, sure. it's the same thing. It's just we're counting one and we're not counting the other. So you end up with these weird statistical distortions. The, the statistical distortion, yeah. But if you're talking about quality of life, um, losing an infant is going to be a lot more tragic than than seeing there's a problem with the fetus and having to abort it, perhaps. Well, maybe, but also a lot of this is culturally mitigated, right? So we talked about this in, in the section of, I don't know if it was Sex at Dawn or, or Civilized to Death, but um, in, many, in many hunter-gatherer societies, for example, babies aren't considered human until they talk. Huh. That's considered, that's when it, the, the child stops being a sort of a fetus and becomes a human. That's when it's given a name. That's when you start relating to them as a hmm. human being. Um, so if someone dies before they're considered a human being, maybe this evolved as a way to protect themselves emotionally from the fact that you know there's a pretty good chance this kid's mm. gonna die um yeah. in the first year or two so yeah i'm not saying it's a good thing and i'm not saying it wasn't emotionally devastating um but there are ways that cultures shape experience uh especially experience that's quite frequent hunter-gatherers are very aware of death right they're they're in the presence of death every day they're hunting they're killing they're you know they're seeing beings going from a state of being alive to not being alive every day of their lives so you know uh an oncologist who sees people die a lot some oncologists it destroys them and they can't they they need to change their specialization or leave medicine. Hmm. Others are like, well, this is part of life. And they incorporate it into their experience in such a way that it doesn't destroy them. I would say hunter-gatherers are probably closer to that second group. 
Yeah, I think that's interesting about um, babies not being real people till they can talk because I feel a bit that way and I feel like I have to hide that and pretend I'm interested in friends' babies. <laughs> and I, all my friends yeah. having babies and they'll be listening to this, so I'm sorry. And it's none of you particularly. <laughs> and I've got one friend actually, um, his name's Freddie, I should tell you, uh, because, because he's a huge fan of yours actually. He's the f- person who first put me on to you. He, he, yeah. he really is a fan of yours. Um, and he... He has just had a baby, but he's been he's been really understanding of that, and he's been messaging, going, "Look, I'm not going to tell you anything about the baby. I know you don't want to know. I'm not going to send you photos of me with the. Baby. I'll send you one photo. This is me. Here's the baby. I know you don't want to know. I wouldn't want to know about yours when you have a kid. Don't show me your baby. Right. <laughs> when they talk, oh yeah, I'll come. Hello, you're right. It's quite. An, you have a little chat with them. Do you want to come right. and play football in the park or whatever? But not talk rubbish. Ru- babies absolutely rubbish. No, I mean they're. And also, I mean, there's scientific reason to see babies as fetuses because they are. Human babies are born, you know, you think about a, a colt. A colt is born, three hours later, it's running around in the field with its mother, right? Humans are born, they're like shitting on themselves. They, they you know, they're just like vomiting. They're, they're a mess. And the reason is because they're not supposed to be born yet. They're born because they, they're, are, it's an evolutionary mess that was created by our expanding brains. The head gets too big. So the baby has to be born before it's fully developed so that it can get through the canal without destroying the mother. So basically what you have is a fetus outside the mother's body way before mm-hmm. it would otherwise naturally be outside the mother's body disgusting so the first year of a baby's life it's essentially just a fetus outside the womb man it's just oh it's disgusting i've told i've told i've told my girlfriend if we have kids i i'm just not gonna i'm gonna go away for a couple of years and come back when it's sort of ready and then right. look after it. i don't know how she'll feel about that well maybe she'll get another you know another guy to have an intermediary sort of pre-daddy yeah. you know yeah, yeah. He's wel- yeah he, they're welcome to help look after the fetus baby, you know. Well, I mentioned that earlier, that there are tribes that believe that, that the fetus is made of accumulated semen. And so the woman will have all the relationships with these different men. Then when the baby's born, all of those men consider themselves to be fathers of the baby. It's fascinating. There's even in one, we talked about in one tribe, there are different words for the different fathers. There's the one who puts it in, the one who mixes it around, huh. the you know, there are all these different names. And so, you know, and I've talked to women about this and, and a lot of women are like, oh, man, please, please give me like three or four dudes to help me with this kid. Right. Because the yeah. one guy, like, he gets overwhelmed. He can't handle it. Three or four guys. That's just right. Yeah, but those three or four guys would have several jobs to do each day. They have to keep going around all the different houses or or tribes or whatever because they they've probably got loads of babies as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanna I wanna know about before before we finish. I'm thinking I'm gonna make this into two parts because we talk long. I usually only do sort of fifty minutes or so, and we're on like an hour and a half. So I might do part one and part two. Yeah, I have to. Oh no, okay, we're good, we're good. No, I I know there was another recording later, but it's it's not. I thought it was at twelve. That's good. Okay, I just I don't want to go without mentioning your podcast. Tangentially speaking, it's it's huge, enormously popular. Did did you imagine? I got two questions. Did you did you imagine it getting 
as big as as it is when you started out and and tangentially what does that because i mean i reckon 99 percent of people listening don't know what that means and don't want to <laughs> admit that so what is it what is it what's your podcast <laughs> i know it's funny sometimes people say so i love your podcast tangentially speaking yes like, that's how no, i read it the first time it has nothing it to do with genitals <laughs> uh yeah yeah uh no i had no idea i mean i i'm one of the og podcasters i started back when people were still wondering what podcasts were i was wondering what podcasts were um yeah, no, I, uh, it, tangentially speaking means you go off on tangents. And my feeling with the podcast was I don't want to do interviews. I want to have conversations. So, you know, I used to hitchhike a lot when I was young and I really enjoyed the experience of getting into a car with a stranger and just finding out who they are and and keeping it and feeling a responsibility to sort of be interesting and put some energy into this because because you stopped and you picked me up you're giving me a ride so I owe you something there's a sense of gratitude and and respect um and you know I I it's a cliche but I learned that everybody's interesting everybody's got something you know, and it's just a question of a, do you know how to make them feel comfortable enough and safe enough that they will share it? And B, does your natural curiosity lead you to a place where you stumble on this thing that often people don't even know is interesting, right? Like I'll often have conversations with people where we go somewhere and they're like, wow, I never, never thought about that. You're right. Like, you're right. Like, wow, this, there's a connection between, you know, my dad and, and the subject of this book I just wrote, you know, to take an example from a recent conversation I had. Um, and I, I love that. I love, I love, it's almost like being a therapist in a sense that I, I, I love being present when people make connections in their minds that they hadn't made before. Um, and I, and I just find, I find, our species to be tragic and um, deeply misguided, but I find individuals to be fascinating and compelling. So uh, I really enjoy the podcast because I get to interact with people on a pretty deep level. You know, I, I mean, how often... You know this because because you do it as well. But it's pretty rare to sit down and have a conversation with someone for an hour, or an hour and a half, no phones, no interruptions, no bullshit, and just really talk with each other. Um, and and you know the the focus of my podcast, like I have people on who've written books or you know whatever they've got their thing that they're they're there to talk about but i really like going elsewhere with them um so maybe you're a you know a famous athlete but i love it if we end up talking about your favorite books and your love life and your parents and what it's like to be a dad or you know whatever like they go and they talk about their their career everywhere else i want to 
I want to talk about other stuff. So, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. And I had no idea when I started that I'd still be doing it nine years later. It's brilliant. Right. I'm going to end on that line of you saying nine years later. I like that. Um, did you look at those questions? Um, what was it? Like your favorite word and that stuff. Oh, yeah. I fucking hate those questions. I know. They're annoying, aren't they? But they sometimes lead to something. And it gives me something to give like bon- as a bonus to... Um, a bonus. Oh, bonus content. Bonus content for patrons. Give me, you know, that's that's my, that's my how I, you know, I get a few hundred pounds from that, which is $500 yeah. or so which a month, which is for me. Yeah, that's, 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 what, great. that's a lot of money. All right. Shoot. Thanks for listening to that. I really hope you enjoyed it. Remember to sign up for the half-hour bonus chat on Patreon, Apple, or YouTube. We talk about Dave Chappelle, Jordan Peterson, Ricky Gervais, John Ronson, cancel culture, nuance, and the female orgasm, among many other things in that half-an-hour bonus episode. That's patreon.com slash Gold or Apple or YouTube, you can get it there as well. Thank you so much to my newest member on YouTube memberships, that's Miss Scotty NZ, who I speak with a fair bit in the comments section, and she's great and really supportive, so thank you so much, Miss Scotty. Thanks too to my new Apple subscribers, although I can't see your names. There are now 40 of you though, uh, so do get in touch if you're one of them and I can give you a shout out or we can just chat about the podcast. No new patrons on patreon.com this week, but at the time of writing or speaking, there are 69 of you. So thanks for your support as well. It was lovely having Chris on just now. A pleasure speaking to him and judging by the duration of that bonus chat, as well as the interview itself, we could have spoken for days. Eventually, we had to draw a line because all things have to end. But that's why his podcast, Tangentially Speaking, is so great because he's such an excellent conversationalist. Find my episode on his podcast as a great introduction to his stuff. Check the show notes for links to his books, Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death. I read the former because it had the word sex in it, and it's really a fascinating insight into who we once were and how we now are. Please remember to review the podcast if you're on CastBox or Apple. It all helps to bring in the big guests. Thanks for your new ones. I always read them out and here goes. This is an episode like all others in that sense and I will read out the reviews. Flying Delta from Indy. That's the name of the reviewer. Flying Delta from Indy. Is Indy... I don't know what that is. Indianapolis. It might be Indianapolis. Delta is an airline. And they are flying on it. This is not a sponsorship, by the way. Delta haven't paid me a thing, so don't don't fly with them. That person wrote, who the flying passenger, just discovered this podcast, really interesting guests, and some very deep, challenging topics. I appreciate Andrew's openness and his occasional personal shares. His honesty really elicits honesty from his guests, who are always interesting. That's a really interesting perspective. Thank you, Flying Delta from Indy. In the UK, Jono Siri also gave five stars on Apple um, and said, Andrew gives his well-selected and fascinating guests room to breathe whilst handling their often challenging and weighty subjects with realness and honesty. One of my favourite podcasts. 
Thanks, Andrew. And Carol G59, who I think has reviewed before, and I don't know if when you review again, if it just deletes the old one and puts the new one in, or if it's a new, I don't really know. But she gave five stars and wrote, having recently figured out how to subscribe, I have discovered a whole new bunch of podcasts to listen to. Wide ranging subjects and guests, thoughtfully presented with humor and respect. Haven't found one I didn't like. Brackets. Yet. Lol. Thank you, Andrew. Oh, thank you, Carol. Thank you for subscribing. That's great. I'm glad you're enjoying the new bonus content. So thank you very much to Carol, John Osiri, and the person flying Delta uh, from Indy for your lovely reviews. They mean a lot to me. Stay with me for next week, everyone. I'm still finalizing who it might be as it's been difficult to pin people down. It might be the crime scene cleaner. It might be Robin Ince. I've been messaging Amanda Knox, but she hasn't been replying. So... That's probably not going anywhere. But all I now know is that it'll be someone who I think is fascinating. See you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.